Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. How tough was that to, to navigate this thing that's supposed to be so great and then losing a, a, a close teammate? You can only imagine, you know, the, the agony. The teacher said, he was asking all the kids what their dads did for a living. And uh, it comes to Michael, he says, uh, my dad goes to the airport and makes bread. And that's what he thought he did. <laughs> that's, that's what he thought I did. <laughs> Mario Andretti is the 1978 Formula One world champion. In his career, he has 12 wins, 19 podiums, 18 poles, and all that in 128 starts. Today, we talk all about Mario Andretti and Formula One. How did he get into it? Who are the right people to talk to to get those opportunities? Being able to afford it. I feel like that is something that is so talked about today in motorsports is the financial aspect. Well, Mario Andretti had to deal with that himself. We talk dangers, and he really opens up about losing people that were close to him. You know, what if it's him, himself, who gets caught up in a bad accident and maybe won't get out of it? He shares those thoughts about navigating the world of the dangers of motorsports. We learn more about Mario's family, his wife Deanne, the relationship that they had, he also shares a very funny story about one of his sons at career day. You might have heard a little bit of it in the teaser. It's one of my favorite stories that he shares. This in particular, I'm very excited for everyone to be able to listen to. So enough of me rambling about it. Here's more of my conversation with Mario Andretti. You mentioned being pushed away in a dirt car and, and you're already thinking about F1. What, was that the dream since you first laid eyes on it? Like, when did, when did that become ingrained in your mind? Like, I'm going to be an F1. Well, you have to go back. I mean, how it's Formula One that I was, you know, Aldo and I were gravitated to the sport because that's what we were exposed yeah. with, you know, and, and at the young age, during our teenage years in Italy. And uh, coming to America, obviously, uh, you had to, you know, once I got into racing, once you get to the top level, um, Formula One was in my head. I said, hopefully, God willing, some, you know, someday I'll have the opportunity. And listen to this. In 1965, I was, I finished third here, and I began, was rookie of the year. And throughout the month, I really tried to befriend Jim Clark and Colin Chapman. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of conversation and so forth. And, uh, and so, and I have some nice photos, you know, together. And, and, um, and so at the banquet, you know, Jim Clark won, I finished third. So uh, at the banquet, when we were saying our goodbyes, I said to Colin Chapman, I said, Colin, someday I'd like to do Formula One. He said, Mario, 
when you think you're ready, you call me and I'll have a car for you. Can you imagine what those words meant? And, uh, and so, again, so I said, now, now I gotta start road racing. <laughs> <laughs> and can you imagine, like, um, uh, in 63, two years before, there was only one road race. Amid, in midgets, we ran Lime Rock, Connecticut. And I won it. And then in 65, I, I lobbied like crazy, you know, to USAC, you know, to, you know, to expand the series, you know, to be as versatile as possible. Because we had, you know, we had part of the championship was, uh, uh, all, of course, all the ovals, but then also was the dirt, dirt races, right. you know. So, and, and they had one road race, which was here in, um, you know, near Indianapolis at um, uh, Raceway Park. Yep. And they had one road race, and I won that. You know, so then they started, in the IndyCar, they started, you know, they, we started going to Canada, you know, to Mossport, to Saint-Juvite. Uh, then we started going to uh, Riverside, and, and so all of a sudden, you know, it was much more part of that. And that's when, you know, Dan Gurney actually used to do a lot of these road races in, you know, in Indy cars because he was doing Indy also, you know, uh, sporadically. And um, so, uh, and then I, I you know, was able to join the Le Mans program for Ford, which was an incredible amount of testing. Uh, being done there, and I said, I'm available for all of it, you know, and uh, I befriended, we became very good friends with uh, Bruce McLaren, and uh, he and I, you know, obviously after day of testing, we used to spend time, we'd go to dinner and talk, and I used to, you know, just, uh, uh, just kind of uh, go into his brain, you know, and, uh, and, and he was a very technical driver, so I, I felt that I, I learned quite a bit from him. I think I had the high speed stuff, you know, pretty well, you know, okay. But I just needed all the healing, all the break, you know, the approach to the hairpins and all that sort of thing. And um, he taught me a lot of that. And then, you know, we won Sebring together in 67. And then in 68, I called Colin Chapman. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, I said, I'd like to do the last two races of the season. And, uh, and he, he said, right, he said, I'll have a car for you. So the rest of Lester Racer was uh, Monza yep. and Watkins Glen. Mm -hmm. And so I said, great, Monza, you know. And uh, so obviously we were going to do a test. We did that a week before, week before the race. And, uh, and it went really well. Uh, you know, the comparison I had at that time was an Indy car, which, you know, uh, obviously much heavier car and, and, uh, and the Formula One car felt so nimble, so responsive. Mm -hmm. I felt so good in it. And uh, I set a good time in Monza. In fact, that was quicker than Chris Heyman had been with a Ferrari four days earlier. And, but there was a, there was a glitch here. Uh, to race in Monza, we had to uh, come back here and race at the Hoosier 100 yeah. on the dirt because I was going for the championship and so was Bobby Unser. Bobby Unser, yep. And so uh, I got Bobby Unser a ride in a BRM 
so he could drive a Monza, so we could do slipstreaming because in those days, every single time you were on the track for practice, the time counted for qualifying, by the way. Oh. So we were able to put in a qualifying time on the first practice of the Friday, and then we had a plane at 2.40 to come to the States and race Saturday and then go back to race in Italy on Sunday. And, uh, and we had an agreement with the um, track promoter, you know, Bacigalupi, and also uh, the FIA arm in Italy, Count Lorani, that they would waive the 24-hour rule because, uh, you know, USAC, you know, like Indy, they were part of the FIA, you know, uh, part, part of FIA, so they had to adhere to the rule, which was a 24-hour rule. You could not race within 24 hours. Uh, you know, uh, in any major event, so to speak. So they were going to waive that, and, and we did that. Bobby and I, we qualified, and uh, in fact, it was quite a bit quicker, you know, to them, but nobody's really going for it, you know, the first practice. But nevertheless, uh, we come back. In fact, I finished second to Foyt here at the Hoosier 100, yeah. and uh, we go back, and uh, my car was seventh on the grid, even with the time they said in the first practice mm -hmm. and uh, and there was a protest and to this day I don't know exactly but I think it was Ferrari that protested because you know they prevail and uh, um, the only one that could uh, there was no one that could speak Italian at the protest because uh, and so Colin Chapman you know he was there and he said well can cannot drive and uh, so we didn't, we didn't get to start that race. And, uh, but the first start, and it was a Watkins Glen. And uh, I put the car on pole there. And I was surprised myself, like, but you can't believe uh, the feeling that I had at that point. And who was next to me? It was Jackie Stewart, world champion, yeah. you know? Uh, so, um, you know, to, to, to have those moments, you know, in your career, I mean, um, you can just, <laughs> uh, can't believe it. Can you know? Uh, am I taking it for granted? I mean, I'm so fortunate, so blessed, you know, to have had those opportunities. I want to unpack those two starts, or the, really the one start, but the attempt at Monza. I heard there's a story where you and Bobby were stopped by security going into the track. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, what was the story? <laughs> Uh, we have, uh, it was, uh, we, we didn't have our credentials with us, you know, even though a mechanic picked us up yeah. at the airport. And uh, in fact, we had to pluck him out of the seat because he wasn't fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby plucked him out of the seat for me <laughs> to drive. So we get to that, and it was, um, and, and the, the Carabinieri, which is the military, actually were the, the ones you had to go through there. You have to have credentials. And I go there and I, nothing and and they, and Bobby said don't go don't go he said the guy's got his hand on his gun oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so I took a fortune I could speak Italian you know and uh, but they you know they got us but they uh, you know at all they didn't put us in jail <laughs> but he gunned it right but he, I gunned it yeah <laughs> just uh, that had to be a stressful start to the day <laughs> Yeah, nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> nothing new. Is that pretty typical? <laughs> oh, man. We had moments like yeah. that. Yeah. How was it traveling back and forth? Like, did you get 
jet lagged? Like the time zones throw you <laughs> off having to do this? You know, the good thing for me, I think I've always been a good traveler because I could, yeah. could sleep on a plane and so forth. And, you know, you, you make the best of it. You know, what else? You have no other choice, you know. But, uh, and, you know, with first class, or at least, you know, you had, you know, decent seat and so forth. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, I remember that when we left after the, the Hoosier 100, you know, we had to be on the plane. And uh, we, uh, I, I, I don't remember this clearly. I think that uh, uh, we borrowed, uh, I think, a lira from Roger Penske. I'm not 100% yeah. sure, but I know we did something like that to get us to Boston. Because Boston had a TWA flight that time at 8 o'clock at night to go to Milan. And that's what we did. That's what we took. And, uh, but we were there, you know, and made <laughs> the race. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. You mentioned putting the car on pole at Watkins Glen. What a feeling that felt like. How did the first F1 start go? Well, uh, you know, obviously it was my first start ever. And, um, and, and, uh, Jackie beat me into the first corner, you know, which was fine, which was perfect for me because I, I wanted to just have, have a feel of what the pace was going to be and so forth. And, uh, and things, you know, were going okay. And then, but um, I didn't have, unfortunately, as a third car, I didn't have the best engine I had. And, and the clutch, you know, started going, uh, you know, early in the race. I was running second, you know, to him. But... Um, and, and I dropped out, you know, clutch slipping. So that was it. After that, what's the future for F1 like for you? Did you know there was, there was something down the line? What were the conversations like? Well, uh, yes. I mean, uh, Colin, you know, he's, he, uh, uh, we bonded, you know, to, to some degree. And, uh, and, and I did a couple of races uh, the following year. You know, and uh, this South Africa, I remember, uh, I hadn't f finished one yet. And then I did, uh, then I did the Nürburgring with a four-wheel drive, which, which was a takeoff from the Indy four-wheel drive car I had in 69. Mm. And that car was very fragile. And I remember at the start uh, of the race at Nürburgring when we, come over to, you know, the Fluke Plaza, which is called the airport, when the car just goes all four wheels yeah. off the ground. When it landed, left front wheel just snapped right off, huh. you know, the hub. And then I didn't crash, pull over the side, you know, but, uh, and 
actually, you know, I was fast enough that I think Colin was impressed, you know, that, uh, and he offered me a, a ride. I couldn't afford it. Financially, I just couldn't afford to do Formula One uh, at the time because, uh, you know, involved, uh, you know, with this, uh, uh, with my contracts with Firestone and, and what I had going here and things were going quite well for me. Um, I just couldn't afford to do it. And, but I wanted to keep my hand in it. Yeah. And then, uh, you, know, um, you know, I was driving sports cars, started driving some sports cars for Ferrari. And then uh, and Ferrari, uh, you know, I talked them into giving me a ride in South Africa in 1971. I, oh yeah, to get ahead of that, I, in 1970, one, once uh, I was involved with the STP, you know, with Andy Granatelli, he had, it was a heavy sponsorship with the March team. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and so we had our own car. So in 1970, I drove, you know, quite a few of the races. Uh, the best finish was a third at uh, Spain. And um, but we had sporadic races, uh, you know, one race in Austria, I got upside down, I went throttle stuck, went over the wheel of uh, Pedro Rodriguez car, and uh, so it was kind of a short season there. But uh, then, you know, with my association with Ferrari, I um, expressed, you know, uh, my desire to do some Formula One, not full time. And, uh, and we did uh, South Africa, which I had my first win there mm -hmm. as a third car to win the race. It's pretty it was good. Pretty good. Felt pretty good. And then, but right after that, they had the non-championship race in Ontario, and the Twin 100s. Because uh, the reason they had Twin 100s because uh, they had some Formula 5000 cars there, and didn't have a big. A tank big enough to go the full Grand Prix distance, so they split it. They did, and um, what's interesting there that uh, uh, Jack Eeks was my teammate, you know, at Ferrari, and qualifying for the. Uh, I had to qualify on Friday because on Saturday I was driving a Champ Car race, IndyCar race in Phoenix. Oh man! <laughs> so. And, uh, and I was really in a, in a rush to get my time in. And, uh, and it was uh, one of the Can-Am drivers was driving a Formula 5000 car. I tried to pass him on the outside at one point, and they put me out in the gravel, and I went into the guardrail. And so, um, you know, it was, I had set a time, you know, but it was deep in the field, like mid-field mid or something. And so I had to go to you know, to Phoenix yeah. and then come back. And, uh, and they, they fixed the car, they had a, you know, they went to one of the local, uh, well, actually, Kuzma, some of those shops, you know, they did a good job. And, um, and, and in the morning, and I think uh, uh, Jack Eeks actually uh, ran my car, you know, to just check it out, everything was okay. And uh, from midfield, there's a bam, bam, bam. I won that race. I won the first one, and Jackie Stewart for the second. And the second one, both he and I started in front, and uh, he took the lead. And the third lap, I passed him, and I won both of those races. Oh, man. And then uh, that was, and, and they, uh, and Mr. Ferrari, 
uh, called me to the factory and he offered me he offered me a Formula One full full time job as a number one and I couldn't take it. I just again, like I said, uh, the earning power just wasn't there in Formula One. I, th I had to think of that because I had a young family and, and um, financially I was quite honestly uh, I was doing really well here and I w had to be thinking those terms because yeah. you know something happens to me you know and, and there's too much of that going on and uh, and I, I felt that responsibility and so I figured my day will come you know to do Formula One and uh, I st still did a few off you know jobs and then in 1970 once I joined the Pernelli team uh, I started thinking of Formula One, and I talked them into uh, to to actually fielding or or uh, entertaining entering Formula One, and and, and we did, hmm. you know, in 1975, and uh, and finally because uh, in '74 I had a really good run with them uh, in Formula 5000. I think we won almost every race that we we finished. We didn't finish. So many, we, we were second in the championship both years, but uh, uh, Formula 5000 was really, really, actually taught me a lot. It was uh, um, basically as fast, they were as fast as a Formula One car, so that was a good thing for me. And uh, But uh, we, we had uh, the designer, which was one of the Lotus designers, Morris Philippe, that was uh, actually hired by uh, the Pernelli group, you know, to do the Indy cars, and uh, so he was. His task was to design the Formula One car that we were going to race in '75, 1975, and that that's the first time that I went full time, except uh, racing at Indy, but uh, full time Formula One, and uh, you know, we, the the car that was designed actually was actually not. Uh, it was a, a, like a two-year-old design, basically. That's what uh, Morris Philippe had. And was, the car was okay, but it was not going to be able to win. I think we might have won uh, if the car flew in a broken link, a tow link. Uh, uh, we might have won the, the street race in, in Barcelona because I got into the lead. I actually passed James Hunt for the lead. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was leading that race very nicely, and and uh, but I had a it didn't you know started about sixth or seventh I think, and at the start I had a contact with uh, Clay Regazzoni with my right rear, and somehow I must have compromised the toe link because uh, during the race, finally that snapped and then I was out of the race. And that was probably that would have been the best performance. I know we could have won that race if, I, if it would have been. But um, nevertheless, um, time goes on, and um, and at uh, the beginning of the '76 season, uh, here we are at the Long Beach, and I'm sitting in a car for the start, and Chris Economaki puts a mic to me and says, "Mario, this is uh, what's your response?" that uh, Val and Parnelli Jones decided to withdraw from Formula One after this race. I said, oh my goodness. I said, I, I don't know what to say. I never, you know, they never discussed that with me. So that was the news 
That's was, how you found out? That's how I found out. And how was, how was, I mean, you obviously said what you said to Chris Economaki. You said, that's the first I've heard of it. But what internally are you oh, thinking was, in that moment? Uh, I mean, it was devastated. Yeah. I was devastated because at that point, like you said, at that point I had decided I want to devote, mm. you know, time in my career, you know, to really to do Formula One full time. Unfortunately, all the seats that were offered to me were occupied. Right. There was no chance for me to go with Ferrari or Lotus at the time. They had their driver lineup. And uh, so, but uh, with, with the Pernelli group, but uh, here again, I go to a negative turning into a positive. Yeah. Because uh, the next day, I'm, uh, we're staying at Queensway Hilton in Long Beach, and I'm having breakfast by myself. Uh, my wife didn't even want to join me. I was so miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I'm sitting there by myself, and I'm looking across, and there's Colin Chapman by himself. And we're looking at each other, so I join him. And um, one thing led to another. I said, Colin, I said, uh, I'm out of Formula One. I said, uh, I said uh, if you ever need a hand, you know, someone, I said, I'm there for you. And he said, Mario, I don't have a good car. I wish I had a good car for you, but you want to drive for me? He said, you can be, and I said, if you consider me number one on the team, because I know a number one I always had the best engine and everything. He says, you got it. He said, but we don't have a good car. I said, we'll make it. We'll make it a good car. We'll work on it. That was the best day of my life again. I said, now we go, and with Lotus. And, um, and Colin Chapman, the reason that they were not so competitive, he had so many distractions. You know, he, he was a man with so many goals, you know, he was very ambitious. And he started a boat company, the car company at the time. And in, so Formula One <clears throat> was not his priority. And that's why they were not really as competitive as obviously they knew to be. And I said, Colin, I said, you gotta come back racing full time. And his wife, Hazel, said, that's the best thing you could have said to him. Hmm. You know, and he did. I said, just delegate responsibility, I said, to the car company and to somebody else. I said, but come back racing. And that's what he did. That was, uh, you know, and we made the car better and better. We had a couple of podiums and we won the very last race of the season, which was Japan, which you figure, okay, it was in the rain, you know. Yep. No, I was on pole in the dry. So... That's important. It was not that the, just because it was a rain race. And uh, so that was so encouraging. So encouraging for the team. There's nothing better for any team than to win the last race of the yeah. season. You know, and, uh, and, and he said the words to me that I hear again, I'll never forget. I said, Mario, it's a next year's car. He's going to make this one look like a London bus. <laughs> That's what he said. I said, Right, you know, and uh, so that's what you always, you know, you have to look forward to, and uh, that was the beginning of something good after that. Yeah, I've never heard the London bus phrase. That's what he said. And, and, and was he right? He was right. He was right, he yeah. Was right. You said big things coming, F1 World Championship in, in 1978. What do you remember about that season? When you have, you know, the car that you know that can do it, uh, if we can finish races, you know, I think uh, 77, 
would have been even an easier world championship than 78. We couldn't finish a race. You know, what we f finished was usually winning. Uh, but uh, 78 was magic, obviously. We were able to put it all together. And, um, um, you know, can you imagine also uh, clinching a world championship in Monza, you know, where yeah. my dream started? Unfortunately, under the worst circumstances, yeah. by losing my teammate, you know, Ronnie Peterson. Uh, and, but, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. But um, looking back, at everything, how things happen, I come full circle on so many things. Um, you know, I felt so incredibly blessed again, again, over and over. I heard people describing what that race and the, the highs of winning and clinching the, the title and the lows of losing your teammate. I know what kind of toll that must have taken on you how tough was that to, to navigate this thing that's supposed to be so great and then losing a, a close teammate? Like yeah, that? I mean, uh, you can only imagine, you know, the, the agony. And uh, then I'm looking, you know, my wonderful wife, you know, knowing this can so real how it can happen. We lost so many of our closest friends, you know, all of that, you know, and then you try not to dwell on that negative. Uh, and you feel for the other family and you know we were so close you know we were buddies really buddies and uh, uh, yeah yeah I mean uh, that was a cruel part of the sport obviously no question and um, and it's you know it's tough to continue but uh, again uh, if you're gonna dwell on that then you know you don't belong in the business you know you, life must go on how, how much did the danger creep into your mind? I never dwelled on that negative. You cannot do that. I mean, that's what we knew. I mean, we always knew that we could make things better, you know, but uh, uh, every, perform every safety perf uh, feature in a race car was a performance penalty. So right. unless, yeah. unless it's designated, it's in the rule book, mandatory to do, you're not gonna have anybody volunteer. You know, so that's when a lot of this, and you talk about, you know, the Jackie Stewart's, you know, and, and Nicky Lauda's, and that's how we formed the GPDA. For what? To be able to just trying to get the sanctioning bodies to impose safety features, not only on the car, but on the tracks as well. Yeah. I mean, some of the tracks, I mean, <laughs> But today's standard, oh my goodness. Yeah. So, um, and it took a long time, but uh, I've said this a million times, I don't think the sport would have survived as it, as it became more and more commercial unless safety was dealt with vigorously. Because I always said that uh, companies that spend millions of dollars to be part of a team they don't want to go to funerals. They want to celebrate. There's a lot of pride that goes into that and everything. And, uh, and it took a while, you know, but it was a, a, a work in progress, which it still is, by the way. And things got better and better and better where, you know, the blessing is that today's drivers have uh, the best chance ever to retire on their yeah. own terms, uh, which is a good thing for the sport. 
you're mentioning some of these tracks and, and some of the standards, especially today versus then. I know this goes a little little backwards in time, uh, but Langhorn, oh. what was that track like? Oh my goodness. Uh, that, that track claimed more champions' lives, you know, than any other. You know, when it was dirt, especially. And, uh, you know, when it paved, it finally, I think, was a little safer because when it was dirt, uh, turn one, they called puke hollow, they used to call it. And they used to dig up because there used to be a dumping site, I think, oh. uh, way back, God knows when. But, uh, but uh, it was soft. And, I mean, the ruts used to be like, you know, a six-inch dip. And, if you, and I remember the first race that I drove there, my hands were like hamburger. Oh you know, because, you know, steering, you yeah. go through there. And, and as you go through those ruts, you have to do it. And God forbid you back off. I mean, you had to just stand on it, just boom, bust through it. You back off, you know, you just go. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what claimed a lot of the guy. It was, that was a brutal place, but awesome to <laughs> a challenge. If you, if you make it at the end, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was a great challenge. Yeah. I, I want to touch on something that you, you, you said a few times and it was and I think it's so relevant to people trying to come up through the ranks and race today but the financial aspect of it how tough was it to navigate that especially early in your career I know your wife even had to go back to work to help you know sustain you know income for a family like what what was that time like in terms of having to pay for racing well, I got to give you the story about yeah. my wife. You know, I had to put her to work because uh, the way I got the TQ midget, I got her dad to invest to buy it. He and the partner that he had. And I said, the deal was, I says, you buy that car for me. That was the only way I could get one. Mm -hmm. and, and I said that, and you will, I will share with you. I'll give you 50% of everything that car own earns and when I don't need any more when you sell it you you know it's all yours mm -hmm. deal that nobody could refuse <laughs> but but there was a maintenance maintenance aspect of it I was driving that indoors so the car if you had a just a puff of smoke coming out of the exhaust you were done for the evening they park you mm -hmm. and uh, and so I had to have uh, fresh heads and it was a a Triumph 800 engine, motorcycle engine in it. And uh, I had fresh heads every single weekend. You know, because I had that new valve guides and all that stuff, well, that's where the smoke would come from. So, uh, and that was costing me like uh, 150 bucks. To, and then we used to pick up the heads at the motorcycle shop, you know, on the way to the races, you know, in New Jersey. And, uh, and like I said, I had to have that 150 bucks all the time. So <laughs> my wife, when she worked at the blouse factory, that was really her paycheck, you know. And, uh, and then she was pregnant with Michael, our first child. Man, yeah. And uh, so uh, on the way over to the, to, to the track, you know, I mean, yeah, we were going to stop uh, at uh, Bob's cycle shop. And uh, she's going... I said, what's the matter? Oh, nothing. You know, she's going like this. I says, all right, tell me. She says, I quit my job. 
I said, you quit your job. How am I going to pay for these heads now? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, poor Deanne. You know, she said, I'm seven months pregnant. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, that was one of it, uh, one of those things. But the other one was that basically I always said, you know, I, you know, I loved it so much. I mean, this was my rodeo. This is my dream. And I said, I'm not driving for the money, you know. But I had to. You had yeah. to be reasonably. I lost my closest friends. And I look at young families, you know, Billy Foster and so on and so forth. And, and I see just, uh, I mean, what their wives, you know, what they were going through. And, and, uh, and so I figure at least, you know, one thing I can do is I can provide if this, God forbid, happens to me, that they will be cared for. So I had to, you know, believe it or not, I mean, I went for the best contracts and I, I you know, I wanted to earn. And it was, you know, for all the reasons, but uh, uh, primarily I had that in my mind. I was justifying my selfishness to obviously do what I did, even though I was dangerous, by said, I'm earning enough then, you know, that you will be taken care of, you'll be cared for, you know, for, for the rest of your life, that's what you do, you know, without me. And, um, and that was another objective too, you know, just, man, go for it, you know what I mean? And I was driving everything I could, not because, like, the, but it was, it was working good for me because, you know, I said I had a great excuse. Poor Deanne too, right? <laughs> and Deanne was so wonderful. Was I mean, the, the, what was, you know, you never really realize until later on in life when you reflect on things, um, how good she was for me. Uh, Manny, never, ever, ever did she make me feel guilty, you know, for being selfish and, you know, to, to do this. I mean, uh, I get reminded sometimes by my, my daughter Barbie said, you were not at my graduation. I said, I know, <laughs> I had to race. And I, I tell you, there's another story I gotta tell you. Michael, the, the oldest one, when he, he was still young, you know, he was uh, just in school, I think it was second or third grade. And uh, the teacher said, was asking all the kids what their dads did for a living. And uh, it comes to Michael, he says, uh, my dad goes to the airport and makes bread. And I said, what? Because every time, you know, I, I have my, you know, luggage and everything else, Dad, where are you going now? I said, well, I gotta go to the airport and make the bread. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you thought you did. That's what you thought I did. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Good old Mike. Bring it on the dough. Now he's making the bread. <laughs> when did he find out what you actually did? <laughs> a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> dad, my, dad, my dad goes to the airport and makes the bread. Oh my gosh. That had to be funny to hear. And the other, other kids That's probably a like, That's yeah. A <laughs> gosh, that is funny. I didn't know that. Um, you mentioned... Uh, you know, losing people that were close to you. And, and you brought up Billy Foster. I know you had a conversation with him, you know, before he passed. What, what, what was that conversation like? Well, 
here's Billy Foster, responsible in every way. And you know, he, he's coming from the far west, I'm coming from the far east, we blend here, right here in the Midwest, and uh, both have the same ambitions and so on and so forth, and we have young families, and uh, I'm still driving sprint cars. Mm -hmm. And he said, Mario, you're crazy. You know, I said, this stage of your career, you don't need to be driving sprint cars. You know, and because I think uh, by any stretch of my door, the most dangerous of the, you know, racing cars to, to drive at that time. And, and, uh, and, he, and he was driving stock cars. They used sex stock cars and then and also did some NASCAR. And, and, and as fate would have it, you know, we we're in Riverside for the Riverside 500. And I'm actually, we're rooming together, you know, even. And uh, happy, you know, both driving a stock car. And, um, and so I'm ready to qualify. Right after him, he's out qualifying. Front brake explodes, going in turn nine. And he just pancaked into the wall. It was killed him instantly. And that's because of, because of him, I think, ultimately the net was mandated in, in NASCAR. Um, and um, anyway, um, yeah, tragic. Here it is, you know, a family that we, we were as close as you could be, you know, like the, uh, his wife Beverly and the kids, uh, you know, and uh, then to see this and, and the agony that my wife was experiencing at the time. You see what I mean? That's, it was yeah. so close, you know, to us. And, uh, these are all the things that, you know, let's face it, uh, I, <laughs> I felt the responsibility, no question. Um, but at the same time, I always felt, you know, he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't, if that would have happened to me, you know, he'd keep going. So I always use that <laughs> excuse, true or not, you know, but, uh, but it, it, you know, it happened. I mean, uh, I think in one, Two accidents, I think, in uh, in '64, two sprint car accidents. And one we lost uh, Judd Larson and Red Regal in Redding, Pennsylvania. And later on at Ascot, uh, we lost Don Branson and Dick Atkins. Dick Atkins was my team, my teammate with Wally Muskowski. I mean, two accidents, four guys gone. You know, and let's face it. I mean, I. I I would like to talk about that side of it, but realistically, at the beginning of the season, at the first driver's meeting, you look around and you said, um, I wonder who's not gonna be here at the end. I mean, that was the reality, you know, and that's, that's the sport was cruel in those years, you know, no question about it, but, uh, but, uh, you know, you had to overcome that with just uh, passion, passion, and love for doing what you're doing. True, true passion. Otherwise, there's no way you could exist. So there you have it. That was part two of our conversation with Mario Andretti. I'm bringing in our social media coordinator, Dalton Greco. Dalton, welcome. Hi, how's it going? I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, super, super cool. Super happy to be on here. I was excited to uh, share this interview with you. Obviously, like you being 
that in charge of social media, man, you you've got a tough job of like having to know everything that goes out and. Uh, you know, hopefully we've given you some good stuff to work with so far. You know, it's funny. Before I started working here, I I digested like everything Dirty Mo Media did. And now I have to do that for work. And so <laughs> it's kind of like it's it's almost like bittersweet because it's like I still want to be a fan and I, and I still am. But uh, there's definitely a part of me that's like, wow, I really have to lay eyes on every I can't just pick and choose. And it's opened my eyes to uh, the whole world of what Dirty Mo Media is. Um, and, and I'm happy to be able to experience things exactly like this exactly like next level with mario andretti um so yeah it's it's been a wild ride but a lot of fun we were literally just 10 minutes ago going over what we think the second and third and fourth youtube videos should be and like mm-hmm. oh man what are the what are the killer moments right from those and like it was hard to pick and choose we're like well maybe we just like cut four social videos out of this one youtube video because uh you know there's so much good stuff there like what what from what you've heard has has stood out to you from what mario's had to say you know it's funny you you bring up like us trying to figure out the youtube video uh, going over all that content i was like i don't want to cut any of it it's all so good so um man just listening to him uh you know First of all, like just to preface how I feel about Mario Andretti, uh, if if he's if he's not on your Mount Rushmore of, of motorsports drivers or mm. just personalities, then um, I'd like to know who is because he is just a phenomenal, uh, you know, obviously entity in the sport and storyteller and the things that this man has experienced is, um, you know, just it's so engaging. Um, and so th- from this exact episode, uh, my, my favorite parts uh, definitely have to be him talking about his family. Um, you know, he, he gets very deep um, into what it's like to be a driver in a dangerous time of motorsport and how that affects not only his wife, but his kids himself. Um, so he talks about you know, the highs and lows of it. And and that's something that I think anyone can relate to uh, being, you know, life gives you highs and lows, but at such an extreme that he was experiencing it. And, and so, you know, he talks about um, losing a teammate and then how his wife reacted to that afterwards, you know, being that she was having, you know, they were having kids and he wanted to provide for his family. Uh, I think, you know, any man would want to do that. And, and, but knowing every week that you're strapping yourself into a car and that you might not make it out. Um, but your, your passion just takes you to keep going. Um, I, it takes a lot of mental fortitude for someone to do that. And that's what makes Mario Andretti special is, you know, not the average man could not. Um, and so, you know, he goes into those deep moments and then he gets to like the funny moments of, uh, you know, the story about Michael where he goes, um, uh, it's so good. (laughs) You know, where he says, uh, you know, but he, he had a, a you know, sharing uh, show and tell or whatever it was at school where they ask him, you know, who, what does your dad do for a living? He says, my dad goes to the airport and makes bread. Yeah. And that's just so funny. Like, it, and the funny thing is that like the word bread for money now is like, you know, it's Making used in dough, like, yeah, it's know? like it's used in like pop culture and whatever. Yeah. And for like Mario and Dreddy to say that, I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> like, he's I, such a gangster. <laughs> I, I can't believe like, he, you know, I think he said he was in second or third grade. Like that's genuinely mm-hmm. what he thought his dad yeah, did. my dad goes to the airport he makes bread that is so wholesome i think that's awesome (laughs) i know it it was really really it was really cute to hear that story and man he's got a a mind like a steel trap i mean he remembers everything it is it's very very wild to hear how accurate he's he is about those details i mean i think i pointed a clip out to you i asked him you know when he was racing in the f1 world championship and he was also racing in another race in the united states that same weekend 
Um, and, and that was, I mean, his F1 debut, that is. And I'm like, how did you deal with the jet lag? He's like, well, you know, it was fine. You know, I remember we had to catch flight to Boston. Then there was an 8 o'clock to, you know, Italy. I'm like, what? Yeah. You remember the times? That that was very impressive. Like, uh, I don't think I would be able to recall that about a flight I took, you know, two weeks ago, let alone, you know, however long, what was it, back in 1970-something, early 70s? Whatever it was, two, three, yeah. I don't know. I that, mean, that is impressive, and you see that throughout the entire conversation, which I think is cool. Yeah, I, and, and you know, he rounds it out in such a, um, you know, somber way, or, or at least gets to a part where he starts to talk about how you know, being a race car driver, one of the things that you take with you into that career is that, you know, you look around and you think, you know, which one of these guys is not going to be here anymore? And it's such a somber, like you feel his emotion when he says Mm -hmm. it. He like almost gets emotional. I don't know if he does or not. Like in his eyes. Right. But, but he, like, you can feel it. If he, if he didn't, he would, you could, you could, it was definitely transferred to you. I mean, during that moment. And, um, you know, it was, that that's that's what that's the beauty of of sports and that's the beauty of what we get to do here is tell this story and the story that goes from such a high of having kids and funny moments to a low of yeah you know i don't know what tomorrow is going to look like i don't know if there will be a tomorrow mm-hmm. um i'm so glad that there was because now we have this wonderful opportunity to share mario's story with all of our dirty mo fans so. yeah i'm excited about that well we've got more mario and journey coming our way he talks about winning the daytona 500 which i think amazingly winning the daytona 500 is kind of an underrated stat for mario andretti but he goes completely into the story he walks me through the entire weekend we talk innovation stories you know we love hearing those on the download mario had one that was fascinating without giving too much away it's a term that engineers and nascar and you know indycar they it's a concept they use now well mario talks about discovering it because it was unknown at the time. And uh, that was fascinating. And you will have to tune in next week to hear what that is exactly. But um, there's a lot of more, as I use the word gold, there's a lot more gold coming with, with more of this conversation with Mario. So, Dalton, thanks for uh, thanks for taking a little bit of time Man. to uh, share your thoughts about Mario. And yeah. We're looking forward to the next couple of batches. Yeah, I'm so excited. I like I'm on the edge of my seat. I you know, being able to you put are. this out. Literally <laughs> I am right now on the edge of my seat. Being able to put this out to all of our fans. I don't I don't know how all of them aren't just like all I, I'm I'm fully entranced in this series and and I hope that uh, you know, the, for the fans who follow it, that you know, you are getting as much out of it as I am. Yeah. Well, this is what I love about the podcast. You know, the YouTube. It's like, man, we got to find the highlights to put on YouTube. But this is where the interview lives in full, unedited. And um, yeah, I'm excited to share some more. So tune in. Stay tuned for next week. We're gonna be uh, bringing back some more Mario Andretti on his kind of little mini residency here at Dirty Mo Media. Thanks for tuning in. It's been uh, Andrew Curl and Dalton Greco. We'll see you next time. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo. Dirty Mo.